Okay. Greetings, everybody. We are, um, we're, get, get your seatbelts on. We're going to have a lot of fun tonight. This is part two of, um, of our shiur on the, the establishment of, of Kriyata Torah. <clears throat> and I have to just, I want to publicly thank Sherwin for the question he asked, which the answer to that is going to occupy at least half of the shiur tonight, uh, which is about the division of the parashot and how that all happened. And we're going to, I'll, I'll say from the get-go, we're going to go further back um, in history than that, as far as Kriyata Torah goes. And on the other hand, we might not end up with a fully satisfactory answer, but I'll tell you the part that that's still has to be uh, has to be uh, clarified. Uh, but let's start from the beginning. So last week, this is not the same source sheet, but part of it is the same. Last week, I showed that the one commandment that we have in the Torah to read from the Torah is Hakel. And what is it that's exposed, is exactly supposed to be read in Hakel? It's unclear. Uh, it may refer to all of Sefer Dvarim. It's hard to believe that it would that the expectation is that the entire Torah would be read, but it says HaTorah Hazot, which may mean Mishneh Torah. In any case, the Mishnah that we saw here in Source Two ha- suggests that what was to be read, and again, remember Hakel was not practiced uh, already for a couple hundred years by the time the Mishnah was put together, or a hundred years, and so therefore. It's, it's unclear whether they had an oral tradition that this was what was practiced or a transmission that this is what would the commandment meant or this is they're envisioning what it could have been like. This is always a problem when you read the Mishnah describing events in the Mikdash, like Masachet Yoma, Masachet Psachim, etc. Masachet Tamid is an example. Uh, and so uh, we're not really sure that that's what was read, but that's what the Mishnah says is included in the mitzvah. The only reading of the Torah that we have in Tanakh, not as a command, but as a narrative, is a, a critical scene uh, in the book of Nehemiah. It will be critical for what we're going to get to at the end of the shiur, because if you recall what the question that I posed last week to start this two-part shiur was, is Kriyata Torah essentially an educational, informational enterprise or an inspirational spiritual uh, enterprise? Is it about the experience of hearing Torah or is it about learning Torah? And we saw that both components seem to be mentioned in the mitzvah of Hakel, Laman Yishma'u Laman Yilmudu, and Viyaruat Hashem. Let's take a look at this story because the story will shed further light on it. Now, we're gonna, we're gonna march through history a little bit. So we're starting with the earliest recorded public reading of the Torah, which is um, done by Ezra. So that puts us around the year 445 BCE-ish, give or take, under the Persian Empire in Yerushalayim. Uh, the Bigtash has already been standing for, for 70 years or so, and Ezra is the head of the Jewish community in, in Jerusalem. So they gathered. Now, Sharamayim, if you've stood on the southern uh, entrance to the city, of, to the old city, and you look up at the walls of the Harabayit, you can see there are several gates that are closed in, but you can see them. And one of them is Sharamayim. That's the way that the water would come in when brought in uh, on Sukkot. And that's where he stood. By, and, and they said to Ezra Sofer, Lahaviat Sefer Torah Moshe. To bring the Torah, Asher Tzivah Adonai Yisrael, 
right? The one here. Vayavi Ezra Kohen Torah. So he brought the Torah. Lifnea Kahal Meish Vyadisha. Everybody was there, men and women. Anybody who was able to understand, this was on the first day of the seventh month, which we call Rosh Hashanah. Now, there's several astounding things that happen in this story. First, he read it publicly. He read from dawn until midday. Everybody was listening for the whole morning. This is the whole morning Rosh Hashanah. Maybe this is the, where the minute comes of having a long davening Rosh Hashanah. In any case, they made a big platform. And then there's a list of all sorts of names. And we saw them, by the way, in Masachet Megillah, the six Aliyot. Remember the question of Yaakov Minah. He opened up the Sefer. He was above them. He was raised on platform. As he opened it, they all stood up. Now, the Gemara interprets that Amida actually means shtika. It means they were silent. But simple read of it is, as he opened up the Sefer Torah, they all stood up. So he blessed God before reading from the Torah. And here you see before reading, public reading. And then they all said amen, and they bowed. And then, again, the list of the men, the Levim were explaining the Torah. And here you see the basis of Targum, of translating the Torah as it's read. You read a pasuk, translate it, translate that pasuk. We started about in Ardaf. The people are still standing there. He read it explicitly. And clarifying it, and everybody understood it. Okay. Now, um, continuing on, this is for the first day of the seventh month. This is one of the astounding things that happens. By the way, being there from dawn until midday is also quite astounding. So Nehemiah's other name is Hatushata, Vezra, Kohena, Sofer, Ta'am, So they told everybody the following Hayom Kadosh Hu Today is a holy day. Stop mourning and stop crying. Why? They're all crying when they heard the words of the Torah. There are several astounding things going on. Astounding thing number one. The people are listening to the Torah. They evidently are hearing stuff that's absolutely new to them, and it's shocking to them, and they're crying because they realize that they've strayed from the breed. This reminds us of the famous story that happened in the times of Yoshiahu, when Yoshiahu told Chilkiyahu HaKohen HaGadol to go clean up the Beit HaMikdash after they did the big cleanup of the Bamot. And in the Beit HaMikdash, they found a Sefer Torah and they read it and, and Yoshiahu tore his clothes and increased his cleanup of things. Evidently, there was something that he heard that he had not heard before and that caused much anguish, the fact that they had strayed from the Brit. This happens again here. However, they say, don't mourn. Right, because today is a is a holy day, um, and go eat good foods, drink sweet things, wine and send portions to people who don't have. Today is a holy day to God. Don't be sad. This is God's rejoicing, and that's your strength. Which means, second thing is. 
The people were mourning on Rosh Hashanah. They did not know that it was a Yom Tov. I want you to get this. They did not know it was a Yom Tov. And they now find out it's a Yom Tov. It's a holy day. We can't be sad. And even though we heard these things and our natural reaction is to be sad, our inclination is that way, not to be that way. And he continues on. Now, it goes on. Uvayoma Sheni, which is the second of Tishrei, which is not a Yom Tov. Nesfu Rashi, I mean, to them. They want to hear more Torah. They found something in the Torah. What did they find? This again is mind blowing. I don't to you, to me, it's mind blowing. That Am Yisrael should live in Sukkot for a week. They never heard such a thing. And then they publicized that everybody should do it. And they go out and build Sukkot. And what they used to build Sukkot is itself an interesting thing. And they then read by Ikrab And they read now all the way through of Sukkot, every day of Sukkot, they read from the Torah. This is the one mention of a public reading of the Torah anywhere in Tanakh. This story with Ezra in the book of Nehemiah, Perak Chet. Right? So that's now, what was this reading about? This reading was not, you know what? It's Yantif. We have five Aliyot. You know, Cohen, Levi, Israel, two other guys. Um, it wasn't that. It was a public reading, which, as you see, took all day. And then the people themselves requested more. So what was this? What would you call this? Informational or inspirational? Experiential. What? Experiential. It seems experiential. And yet, notice what's happening. There's a focus here on the Levim explaining things. There is a request to the people to learn more. There's more information being shared from them about Sukkot, which they then go and act upon. Matter of fact, you, you see no more direct correlation between Limud and Maseh than in this story. They hear something from the Torah, they go out and do it. They hear something from the Torah, they have an emotion, emotional reaction, and, and then Nehemiah has to, has to, and Ezra and Nehemiah have to stop them from that reaction because there's a bigger reaction they should have, which is to rejoice because it's a Yom Tov. So I want to play, put this out in front of us. Now, we don't have any more sources in Tanakh. And we're going to stay within sources that are firmly within our tradition. Um, by the way, in the next chapter of Nehemiah, you have another example. Um, and this is now after Sukkot is over. And they gathered to fast. And the fa this is the famous fast about the fact that they had foreign wives, everything else. They fasted, and for part of the day, they read from the Torah. And this is, but this is it, all right? Uh, and this is also not necessarily a public reading of the same way as they're all reading. Okay. Now, let's roll ahead. And, um, and start with the following. At this point in time, the reading that we know about is a public reading that's supposed to take place once every seven years, hakel, and that is unclear whether the motivation is informational or experiential. We then have a story of Ezra doing something that looks a little bit like hakel, the leader of the community reading a Torah in front of everybody, and they're hearing it, and they're understanding it, and yet they're having the experience. So both seem, seem to be happening, but it seems to be aimed towards one thing towards the way that they're supposed to relate to the goyim around them, intermarriage, et cetera, seems to be part of the issue, and about the holidays. Okay, 
Now let's roll ahead. We get to the point where, where we don't know how or when, but at one particular point in time during the Second Temple period, meaning before the Korban, Kriyat Torah became a cycle, meaning we have to read the Torah and complete it over the course of a cycle. So where'd that cycle start? Where'd that cycle end? So I'm going to share with you here something from Rabbi Huda Barciloni, who 10th century Chacham in Barcelona. Um, and as you may know, Spain at the time was heavily, heavily, heavily under Babylonian influence. And many of the Chachamim in Spain had studied in Babel and come back. Peter Barcelona wrote his famous Sefer, Sefer Aitim. He also wrote a commentary on Sefer Yitzira, which is a mystical work. But in it, he tells the following. There's a custom in Yeshiva. Yeshiva means in Babel. Everybody recites the first five psukim of Bereshit by heart. That's what they do in Mincha and Yom Kippur. Why? What's their proof? All for all 10 days, the Satan is accusing Am Yisrael. And what's he saying? They already finished reading the Torah. In other words, the idea is that before Rosh Hashanah, they finished reading the Torah. And now they've abandoned it. So when the Jews get together on Mincha of Yom Kippur and read the beginning of Breshid, HaKadosh Baruch Hu has an answer for the Satan. And he says, Look at this. They just finished the Torah. They're starting it again. And the Satan is quiet. Right? He's silenced. Right? And they quote the Pasuk from Zechariah about, you know, God silencing the the, the, the uh the Satan. And he goes on to describe this. Now, um, uh, and he quotes also that Sadi Gaon mentions a custom that they take a Sefer Torah out at Ni'ilah on Yom Kippur. And they read the first Parsha Breshit from the Sefer Torah. And again, the same idea, the other Gonim didn't agree with this, but the same idea that we're reading Breshit to show that even though we finished our reading of the Torah, we're not walking away from it, but we're embracing it. We want to read it again. Now, we do the same thing, but we do the same thing differently. However, what you see here is that in Bavel, in the 9th, 10th century, the custom was to finish the reading of the Torah before Rosh Hashanah. That was the when you finished the cycle. And the cycle began again after Sukkot. At Tishrei, there was just no, during the, the Rosh Hashanah through the end of Sukkot, there was no progressive reading of the Torah, there was reading of the Moadim. So you can ask, so what do they do on the Shabbat, if there was a Shabbat between Rosh Hashanah and between Sukkot and Yom Kippur and Sukkot, for instance? Good question. I don't know. And so therefore, they had to read Breshit, not as part of the progressive reading, but just as a statement of, we want to start again, we can't wait to start again, and either with or without a Sefer Torah, it was that read that way. There's actually... Um, support for that idea here in this sugya in Masachet Brachot. Masachet Brachot, and we all know this halacha, in Masachet Brachot, uh, in Davchet, we have a statement of Rabbi Ami. A person should always complete reading the parsha with the tzibur. Now, by the way, right there, that already signals something. Rabbi Ami, remember, is end of the third, beginning of the fourth century in Tveria. 
Rabbi notes that a person should complete reading the Parsha with the Tzibor, which means this week is Parsha Peshalach. So we all read Parsha Peshalach, meaning that there is, first of all, some sort of progressive reading going on, and it's communal, meaning we're all on the same page, literally, and therefore you should read along with them, and you should read Shnaim Mikra Vechad Targum. Now the Ravon, important to note, the Ravon, one of the Baleatos folk, maintains that what this means is that if you're not going to be in Shul to hear Kriyat Torah, you should do this because this is what they did in Shul. In other words, they read the Mikra and the Targum. But all of the Rishonim disagree with that. They say, you have to hear Kriyat Torah and you also have to do this. This is a study piece, right? However, notice that already in his time, which is early in the Melorahic period, there is a cycle of reading, which is communal and which progresses and you have to go with them. Now the Gemara then tells a story about Bavel. This is Eretz Yisrael. In Bavel, he didn't have time to get to this. You know what he said? He said, I'm going to sit down here, Yom Kippur, and I'll ram through all of it. Meaning, I'll go from Breshi till Zotab Racha, Targum, boom, 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 boom. Right? Or we assume, because Bavel, probably that was what it was, which means in Bavel, they were finishing the reading somewhere around or before Yom Kippur and starting it again right afterwards because he thought that was the end of the cycle. And then the Chachamim told him, no, that's not what you should do with Yom Kippur. And then they, you know, the basic halacha is you should do it with the week at which we're doing it. But this is what you see going on. Now, we'll take a look here, and you're going to see something in the Mishnah that we actually just saw today in the in the daf. Uh, something, and I mentioned that we will talk about it tonight. Uh, something that's also going to cue up our antennae. The Mishnah talks about the famous Arba Parshiot, and parenthetically, we should note that the public reading of the four Parshiot that come before during in the last second Adar or in Adar seems to be the earliest formal public reading that we have, meaning you have to read these things at this time. May even be earlier than the specific readings for Yom Tov. In any case, Rosh Chodesh Shal Adar Shechaliot B'Shabbat. So for Chodesh Adar falls on Shabbat, Korin V'Parshat Shkalim. You read Parshat Shkalim. What does that mean? What does that mean? Whatever Parshat Shkalim is, Sav or Shkalim, what does it mean, Korim Parshat Shkalim? Does that mean... Instead of the Parshat Shishua. What? There's no Parshat Shishua. Right. It may mean that this week, we're not going to read Parshat Shavua. We're going to read Shkalim, which would mean Parshat Shavua, we assume, has to be read, is going to get pumped off by a week, or maybe more. Now, this is actually a machloket in the Gemara, what it means, but the simple read of the text here is that we do not read Parshat Shavua when we're reading the special Parsha. So if, Shabbat, if Rosh Chodesh Adar falls on Shabbat, that Shabbat, we're not going to read the Parsha, we're going to read Shkalim. But if Rosh Chodesh is during the week, then we read it on the week before, and then we skip the next week, which means we would read the regular Parsha. And then Bashniyah Zachor, the second week Shabbat of, of Adar is Zachor. Bashlishit, Paraduma, it may be the it may be more than that if depending what day of the week form is. So you're all familiar with the four famous parshiot. And now here's the kicker: on the fifth week, you go back to the regular order. What does that mean? So the simple read of it, and as there's an opinion as this in the Babli, but this is what the simple, straightforward opinion is: we then resume reading Parshat Shavua, 
which means two things. It means there was a regular cycle of Parshat Shavua, whether in Eretz Yisrael or Bavel, on a different schedule, but a progressive reading. And that reading gets interrupted for special readings and postponed. And we'll put it off for however many weeks we have to put off. And then we'll pick it up where we left off. That's the simple read of the Mishnah. The, the Gemara suggests a different read, which is not the simple read, which is to say that they go back to the regular order of Haftarot. The reason that doesn't work is because Haftarot don't have a regular order. And Haftarot aren't progressive. And Haftarot also were wide open in the times of, of the Gemara, except for these special Shabbatot. You could pretty much pick what you wanted to read for the Haftarot with the guidelines. So it's a little unclear what it all means. Before moving on, I want to show you a bizarre passage uh, from the Zohar that makes the following statement. In the, in the uh, commentary on Avram's negotiation for stone, how does Avram start his negotiation? Maybe there are 50 tzaddikim. So watch what the, what the Zohar has to say. Now, the Zohar, remember, is 13th century. Um, may reflect slightly older, older traditions, but it evidently has the seeds of much older traditions. So take a look at what it says. So this is the metaphysical representation of that text. In other words, what does it mean? Maybe there's 50 tzadikim. Maybe they have studied the 50 parashot of the Torah. Now, let me just ask you. How many parashot are there in the Torah? So I'll give you the quick answer. It's 54. If you were to count all the parashot that you know as, parashot, as separate parashot, parashat shavu, you end up with 54. What happened? Where did the 50 come from? So the Gaon in his commentary on this suggests that after all, there's five chumashim, and each chumash is divided into 10 parashot, and therefore you get five times 10. Now, I'll help you out. Ten. Alright? You, you with me? Okay. Let's take Dvarim as an example. Dvarim Now, watch this. some sleight of hand, so watch it. Oh, good. So as you're going to see soon, they're not two. All right, Bamidbar, you ready for this? Bamidbar, Naso, Balotcha, Shlach, Korach, Chukat, Balak, Pinchas. Sorry, I was skipping. Bamidbar, Naso, Balotcha, Shlach, Korach, Chukat, Balak. Pinchas, Matot, Masse, right, the 10. There should be 11. What would I skip? Pinchas. Yeah, that's right. So 10. All right. Now, Shmot's going to be a lot of fun, but we're going to see all sorts of variations in this. So coming back to Sherwin's question, who divided up the parashot? I'm going to divide that question into two parts. Part one, which I do not yet have an answer for, but I'm still looking, is who decided, and I'm going to, I'm going to propose an answer right now, but without having anything to base it on, who decided that we should take a break after um, we introduced to Noah, but before the flood story. And who decided we should take a break before we meet Avram? And who decided that we should make a, take a break uh, when Paro has his dreams? And all the things, the things in Bereshit. Kind of difficult. 
That's part one. But part two, once we have all those things is broken, how do we decide when when to to join them together, when to read, how to how to, and where, where those divisions make sense? So one thing that's critical to note is there's no way in the world to schedule this in advance until probably the ninth century. Why is that? Because up until the ninth century and maybe later, we were still operating with a lunar calendar that was based on testimony or based on a cheshbon that was, was reevaluated, which means it's very possible that at this point in time, let's say this was not a Shanam Oberet, the Beit would decide, you know what, we have to add another month and suddenly Adar would, there'd be two Adars and everything else would change which totally impacts on Pasha Shavuah because it means suddenly the year is a month longer. And therefore I got to somehow stretch out the parasha until I get to the end. So there's no way to have a set calendar of that, which means, Sherwin, back to the question, I have parashot, but I don't know how to join them or separate them until I know what the year looks like. So that's, that's going to be part two. And that you're going to see something very interesting here. Let's take a look. Um, in Rav Sandigon's Shiur, you have, this is actually in a, in a footnote of it, you have in the Tichlal, the Tichlal is the Yemenite prayer book. Watch this. This is now more recent. The common tradition is Chukat and Balak are read separately and Matot Masay is read together. He says, we have a different tradition. Our tradition is we read Korach and the first half of Chukat, stop, and the next week we read the second half of Chukat and Balak. And one of the explanations he gave is maybe they didn't want to read about the death of both Aaron and Miriam in the same week and break it up, make people too sad. It could be, right? So there were traditions going on in the 10th, 11th century of dividing the parashiot differently than we have them as a lechatchila plan without issues of calendar exigencies. Now, you take a look at what Rasag has to say. Watch this. Rasag says the parashot that we have are 53, right? And then he says eight of them are sometimes joined and sometimes separated depending on the year. And notice what he calls them, by the way. What are the eight that are joined? Vayakel and Ve'elab Kudei. You know those. Isha v'zotiyah. What's Isha v'zotiyah? Tazriyah v'zotiyah. But they don't want to see Tazriyah because Tazriyah is not a nice word. And Zotiyah Torata Mitzorah. Mitzorah is also not a nice word. So they say Isha and Zotiyah. Important to note, even that, the sensitivity. Achremot Kedoshim and Bar Sinai all right. Now, you're going to see something even wilder than this. And in some, we have parashot, three parashot read over two Shabbatot, right? Korach and half of Chukat, and half of Chukat and Balak. We just heard that custom, and that's what we do here in Babel. So again, you're seeing all sorts of different customs. Now it's really going to get fun. Machzovitri. Let's talk a little bit about where this comes from. Machzovitri is one of the most significant 
early Sidurim that we have, perhaps the most. Machsovitri was composed by Reb Simcha, who was a student of Rashi, and it reflects Rashi and his Beit Midrash, and it is a Sidur in a sense, but it's much more than a Sidur. It includes lots of Minhagim and Halachot and calendar issues, all sorts of calendar issues. And at the end, in Chelek Bet, uh, in the in the Hashlamot and the, the sort of the addenda that are there, he gives a whole series of what is read on each week of the year for every possible layout of the year, and you essentially have eight possible layouts. Because what days of the week can Rosh Hashanah fall? What days of the week can Rosh Hashanah fall on? So Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Shabbos. Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Shabbos. Four possibilities. And every year can either be chaser or shalem. It can either be a complete year or not a complete year, meaning adar or not, right? And chaser and shalem also refers to marchesh van and kislev, 29-29, 29-30, 30-30, which affects everything. It affects everything because it's going to impact on what day of the week a yontif is. And if a yontif is on Shabbos, that's the day you're going to miss Kriya. So watch what he has. I'm just going to look through this. Again, like I said, not everybody agrees that this is amazingly cool. I see this and I just, I can't sleep anymore. All right. Here he's showing us, which means when Rosh Hashanah starts on a Thursday and it's chaser, which means Marcheshvan is 29 days and it's Shana Mu'beret. Shana Mu'beret means two adars. Watch how they would read. Tishrei Rosh Hashanah Yom Hey, Hazinu Gimavos. You read Hazinu on the third. The tenth is Kippur. Then it's Sukkot. So you're not, you're, you, so then what do you do? You uh, then read Zotah Brachan Simchat Torah. Good. Breshit is the next day. Then Noach. Then Lech Lecha, etc. He goes all the way through Breshit the way that we're familiar with it, right? Now look at Shmot on the, um, on, um, on the third of Shvat, you're going to read Shmot. On the, um, uh, just a second. On the, uh, the um, sorry, Shmot's going to be on the twentieth of Tevet. Very twenty seventh of Tevet, and then Bo is on the fifth of Shvat. Bishalach on the twelfth of Shvat, right? Which is one off of what we have because Bishalach is going to be for us on the um, on the thirteenth of Shvat, I think, right? Yeah, thirteenth of Shvat. All right, Yitro is on the 19th of Shvat, Mishpatim on the, on the 26th, and then comes Adar. All right, now look at what's the next parsha after Mishpatim? Oh. Right, so he calls it Vikhu. Okay, Vikhu Truma, very good. What's the next one? Tetzaveh. The only problem is we've got two months to go before Pesach because Shalom will bear it. So what's the next parsha after Tetzaveh? Vizehadavar. That's a parsha. Is that you ever? Is that a right? Super mitzvah parsha. Is that a davar? You know what is that a davar is? It's in the middle of Tzavah, beginning of chapter twenty-nine. That's just a new parsha. In other words, we read Tzavah, Tzavah. That's the parsha. The next thing we have is a davar. Then we read Kitisa, and then we read Vayifen, which is in the middle of the story of the Egel, a new parsha. Then Vayakel, and when we read the recap of Vayakel, Betzalel, and Betzalel did in the middle of Vayakel. Then we read Pekude, and then what do we have? Vatecha, which is the last chapter of Pekude, which means the last four parashot of Shemot became eight. Why? Because we had to stretch it out in order to do what? 
the critical rule, and this was the custom in Provence, the critical rule was to finish Sefer Shmot on the last Shabbat of Adar. Why? Because the end of Sefer Shmot describes the construction of the Mishkan. And the Mishkan was constructed on the first day of Nisan. And so therefore, there was a desire to finish Sefer Shmot anticipatorily right before Rosh Chodesh Nisan. Which means we're going to play monkey business and move these parashot and spread them out and read very little every week in order to be able to end on time. But that leaves us with a different problem. Let me ask you in general. This year, together or separate, what would you guess without looking at a calendar based on the fact that it's a Shana Mubarak? Separate. Separate, of course. Bahar Bechukotai, separate. They're all separate. Why? Because we're going to read Mitzorah on Erev Pesach. So we got all the time in the world. They don't have that luxury because they took stretched out Sefer Shmot. They finished Shmot before Rosh Chodesh Nisan and now watch what happens. What do you read after Rosh Chodesh Nisan? Vayikra and then Tzav. Tzav here is on the 14th of uh, of um, Nisan, Nisan. Nisan of Erev Pesach. Tzav. They had a rule in Provence to always finish, always read Savannah on the last Shabbat for Pesach, no matter what kind of year it was. Mm -hmm. We have that on a regular year. And <clears throat> the little code for it was Pakid Upasach. Command and skip over. Command is Tzav and then Pesach. Pakid Upasach. All right, and now watch what happens after Pesach. All right, Shmini, then Tazria. They didn't have any problem using the word Tazria. What's after Tazria? Yeah. Achare. What's after that? Amor, then Bahar. By the way, they never had a Parsha Kedoshim in Provence. It didn't exist. In Provence. It never existed. They didn't have a separate Mitzorah in, in Provence. Because every year, they always concluded, they always read Savar before Pesach, which means in order to get to the next necessary thing, which is Bamidbar, right before Shavuot, and the Siman is Maniva Atzor, count and stop. In other words, do the count, census of Bamidbar and then Atzeret, Shavuot. Um, they they would so there was no such thing as the in Vayikra was basically seven seven weeks. That was it, right? And those parshiot were jammed together, seven weeks, correct? Um, and then one last thing to show you is we then. Uh, and this is remember Shana Mubarat, Korach Chukat, Balak, then Penchas, then Rashe. What's Rashe? Rashe Matot, and then Dvarim. Masse is never read separately. Again, all of the, the, the parshiot that we're familiar with, sometimes combined, sometimes separate. In this scenario, which is not the Machsovitri's custom, they're North France, but the custom of Provence, were never <laughs> separated. Because they had this ideal of having Shmot end at the at the right before Nisan. And as a result of that, everything played out the way it did, which meant and Shmot were stretching Parashot and dividing them up and reading small pieces every week. And if Ikran were just jamming through. Okay. Um, um, and now we come to what became what became, and I'm gonna tell you something that in, impacted on. What we now refer to as Parshat HaShavua, the idea that there's a universal Parshat HaShavua. Let's see where it came from. 
right? Let's take a look. We still have to go back to our original topic, which is the nature of Kriyat Torah. But but again, your question, Sherwin, is just great, and so I, I couldn't, I wouldn't be fair for me to, to keep this this fun to myself. So, um, in this next paragraph, Rabbeinu Simcha, who was not exactly a student, a student of Rashi, he quotes Rabbeinu Yaakov ben Rabbana Meir. You know who that is? That is Rabbeinu Tam. Rabbeinu Tam, Rabbeinu Yaakov Ishtam ben Meir. Right, who mayor was, of course, Rashi's son-in-law, um, and he said, "Sider pakidu pasach." He made a rule in a shanap shuta, which means a non-leap um, year. The rule is pakidu pasach. Pakid means command. That means tzav comes before pesach. Over shanam uberet. What is it? Sagiru pasach. Sagiru pasach literally means close it up and jump over, but sagir is an allusion to the mitzora who is in quarantine, Sagir, right? Hesker and Pasach, right? Uveheshin Muberet, meaning Heshin is now, when Roshan is on a Thursday, and when uh, when um, uh, Kislev and, uh, and Marcheshvan are both 30 days, then Uveheshet Muberet, like we have this year, Acharei Kodem Pesach. He said, in that case, we don't have Mitzorah first. We have Achrimot before Pesach. V'siman patiru Pasach, ocheru Pasach. Right? And that's the Siman. Ocheru Pasach, delay and jump over. She'il in some same Sagir Pasach, lomatzinu makom matotu masei lechalek v'shtayim. And he explains why. Now notice, this is Rabbeinu Tam's ruling. Okay, skip down. Now, Rabbeinu Tam had a tremendous impact in the world of Ashkenaz, which means France and Germany. And in Germany, ultimately, they accepted this tradition of, of separating between a Shanamu Beret and a Shanap Shuta as far as what's read and this whole piece, which means that whole weird thing that we had in the Mazovitri, weird to us, of separating out those Parashot and Shmot didn't exist here in, uh, in Germany. And so now watch what happens. Okay, I'm going to have to... Um, what you're looking at is the tour. Now, the tour, and this is where history comes in critically. The tour is Rabbeinu Yaakov, whose father was Rabbeinu Asher the Rosh. The Rosh was the biggest rabbi in Germany at the beginning of the 14th century. The Rosh um, was exiled, or exiled himself, from Germany because, uh, you know, everything was happening in, in that century, and ended up moving to Castilia, becoming the rabbi of Castilia in Spain. And as a result of that, brought much of the impact of Ashkenaz into Sfard. He also learned a lot from that. And his son, Rabbi Yaakov, grew up in Spain, but had a lot of the Ashkenazi traditions. When he composed the tour, watch what he wrote. Leolam is the tour. This is the foundation of the Shulchan Aruch. Leolam, Korin, Tzav, Aron, Korin, Pesach, Bibshuta. When it starts on Zach is when Rosh Hashanah is on Shabbos and it's Chaser, etc. Right? And now watch what he says. When there's two Shabbatot between Rosh Hashanah and Sukkot, which is how Shabbat Shuvah and between Yom Kippur and Sukkot, you have to separate Nitzavim into two. Right? 
And there's a siman, bag hamelech pat vayelech. It's a cute little thing. It's from Pasuk and Daniel. Bag hamelech bet gimel is, if Rosh Hashanah is on Tuesday or Thursday, Tuesday or Wednesday, Monday or Tuesday, hamelech, Rosh Hashanah, pat vayelech, then split up vayelech. Pat means to break up vayelech. Cute little simanim. They have lots of simanim for this. And then a whole series of simanim, as you can see, Beret Sigru Pischu, on a Shlamu Beret, Sigru Pischu, that's Mitzorah, then Pesach, Manu Vatsoru, count and do Atzeret, Sumu Vitsalu, fast and pray, because Tishabav is followed by Vat Hanan, I prayed to God. Kumu Vitiku, right? Kumu Vitiku means Nitzavim, stand up, and then Tiku is Roshana. These are simanim, how to remember when the Parshiot are. Now, this had a huge impact. Because now the tour is sharing the Ashkenazi custom without name and identifying it as one custom. And this is how it became universal. And then the Shacharach quotes it, and that became, from that time on, that was more or less the universal custom. You should know that even today, there are small communities that have slightly different customs. Some members of different Yemenite communities still have different customs when it comes to uh, the division of the Parashot. But by and large, across the world, that's what we have. Which means that, in answer to your question, I can't tell you who decided, although now I'm going to suggest a, 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 a propose something. I cannot tell you who it is who decided that Parshat Noach ends before we meet Avraham. And Avraham, Lech Lecha, that Parsha ends with the Brit Milah and start, and the next one starts with the visit of the Malachim. Who decided that? Um, but I'm, but we do now have a much better picture, I hope, of once there was a notion of a cycle in which we want to finish the Torah, and then we're following the Babylonian model to finish it over the course of the year, we saw that it started right after Sukkot, and that was almost assuredly as an impact of Hakel, because Hakel was the public reading after Sukkot, so very likely that's the reason we started then. And that we saw that they ended before Rosh Hashanah because there's too many days in Tishrei that are Yontif, they don't want to mess it up, so they finished before Rosh Hashanah. And then we saw that tradition of reading Bereshit on Yom Kippur in order to make sure that we didn't look like we were walking away from the Torah. So we then saw over the next thousand years, up until the 14th, 13th century, wide range of customs as far as Nitzavim Vayelech, as far as the Parshiot the end of Shemot, as far as the Chibur Parshiot in Vayikra, all of these pieces were still up for grabs. However, the elemental question of, well, who decided that Tazriya is the end of something and Mitzor is the beginning of something, still sits. So I'll, I'll tell you what I'll, I'll propose, what I think it is. I think we're going to go back to that Makor that I showed you from the Zohar way back. Is that, if you think about it, um, the Torah is divided into five organic separate pieces, meaning the division of the, of, the, of the books is organic. It's inherent in the book. That's really all there is, meaning there's no other division in the Torah except for the five. Except you want to start looking at parashot, you've got several hundred parashot in each sefer, you know, paragraphs. So I think that the next step, and I'm just picking up on what the Gon said, the next step was the understanding that, well, Every book has 10 components, and that builds up 10 times 5 is 50, and 50, of course, a big number with Matan Torah and with uh, Shemit and Yovel, etc. And so that the instinct was to divide each book into 10. By the way, if you look at it, you'll see that that's exactly the case. 
Bereshit, interesting thing, is if you look in some of the early Midrashim, you can get the sense that the passage via Avraham Zakein was the beginning of a parasha. And we have reason to think that the burial of Sarah was actually the end of Chayesar, or the end of Ayera. And that Avraham Zakein and the finding a wife for Yitzchak and Toldot were all one parasha, which now cuts Bereshit from 12 to 11. But this next one's very easy. What's the last part of Breshit? We have Kohanim here. We have a lot of Kohanim here. All right. So uh, Alan, uh, Abe, Sherwin, you ever get the first Aliyah Breshit? During the week on Shabbat, doesn't matter. You ever get the first Aliyah? You ever look at it? What are you looking at? The Balkriya has to point to you where the, the thing starts. That was Kohanim. You always have the easiest job. When you get up, when you gotta get up this morning to get the first aliyah, all right? Um, it's very easy. By Hebrew Shalach is the beginning of a paragraph. That's easy. Wow, okay. What about when you get the first aliyah in Vayachi? What do you see? It's 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 a combined text. In the middle of the text, there's no break not, whatsoever. Yes, not a satuma patuach. Not anything, which gives us the impression that Vayigash and Vayachi were actually originally one parasha. And by the way, you'll notice both of them, as broken down, are shorter than the rest of the Parshiot and Breshi. So it's very possible that Breshi really was 10. The Shmot, Vayikra, Bamid, Bardvarim are all 10. We've kind of demonstrated. And so um, it's possible that that was the original division. Now, once you have that notion, when you walk through, the divisions sort of speak for themselves. And we could do that. I'm not going to take your time. You look through, you'll see it on your own, that some of the divisions are just sort of speak for themselves, and they are fairly even in division because, of course, you don't want to have a huge piece and a tiny piece. One week and the next week, you want to have fairly even divisions. So it seems that that was pretty in there. But again, I have no proof for that. And I also don't know when it happened. But now let's roll to this. The Rambam mentioned, we saw last week, that in Eretz Yisrael, there was a custom to read, or I said in some places they finished the Torah in three years, but that's not the common custom. Okay. So now let's take a look at that issue of the quote-unquote triennial cycle versus the annual cycle of the Babylonian custom. And some of the Mekoro to deal with that, and then we're going to roll it back before we're done to come back to our essential question, which is, what is Kriyat Torah? Tell me Allah Zomer. Now, the, the, the statement is that Ezra made a, an ordinance or a takana that the curses in Dvarim should be read before Roshana and the curses in Vayikra should be read before Atzeret. And the reason they give is that we want the year to finish and its curses be done with. Okay, it's a nice sentiment. It's almost assuredly not the original motivation, but it works out very well on the calendar. And such that we do read the curses um, in, in, um, in Mishnah Torah a week or so before, a week plus before Rosh Hashanah, he would have finished, uh, finished the year on its curses. Okay, but this speaks of course to an annual cycle. Because if you're reading on a non-annual cycle, meaning you're reading, let's say, over two years or three years, even if it's an even amount of years, you're not going to have this. Because that means one year you're going to read the curses, and the other year you're going to be reading Yitzhak Mitzrayim. 
And if you're on not an even year, which like three and a half years, then you could be at any time of the year. All right. So this is reflecting a Babylonian custom and the Babylonian custom of having a one year cycle. And again, as I mentioned, this only works if you start your reading after Sukkot and end it around Rosh Hashanah as we do. And then these can fit in. Now, here is something we saw this morning that is going, there's one mention anywhere in the Bavli about this other custom. <clears throat> and that is the following. We talked about Parshat Shkalim. And if you remember from this morning, there's a machloka between Rav and Shmuel. Parshat Shkalim, what is that? Which Parsha in the Torah is Parshat Shkalim? Is it Kitisa? That's what we do. Or is it Savit B'nai Yisrael, the one we read on Rosh Chodesh? And so the challenging um, Rav, who said that it's uh, that it's Savit B'nai Yisrael. How are they challenging him? What happens if Shkalim falls out? The Shabbat of Shkalim falls out on the to be read on the Parsha that's right next to it in the Torah. What do you do? Whether it's the week before, the week after, what do you do? And you see the problem. Let's play it with Kitisa. Let's say that Shkalim falls out on Titzavah. You see the problem. You're going to read uh, Titzavah. And now you've got to read Kitisa. And nobody will know that it's a special announcement. They'll think you're just going a little too far into the Parsha, into the next uh, reading, next week's reading. All right, so what do you do? Korino Tavikoflinota. So it says you read all the way, all the way to the beginning of Kitisa, then you go back and read it again. So everybody will know it's the announcement. Now, so we understand how Parshat Shkalim could fall out on Kitisa or Tetzavah. We understand that because if Parshat Shkalim is Kitisa, it could be at the same time as Tetzavah. That's that, that they fall out at the same time. Kitisa is the week after that. But when it, where's Tzav? Tzav is in Pinchas. That's always in the summer. How could it be that we're about to read Shkalim on the week around when we'd read it anyways? Shkalim is in the winter. Right? You understand the problem with Gemara? The Gemara is asking, we have a Brita that just says, without specification, what do you do if Parshat Shkalim falls out in a week adjacent to when you'd be reading that passage anyways in the Torah. What do you do? So I'm not concerned with the answer. I'm concerned with the question. The question presupposes that the one, the, whatever we call Shkalim could happen around the same time as it would be read as part of its regular progression. So they said that makes sense if Shkalim is Kitisa. It doesn't make sense if Shkalim is Tzav. Tzav B'nai Yisrael is in Pinchas. It's in the summer. And the answer in it would work for the people in Israel who finish the Torah every three years. Now, that will work if you, uh, that would work in any case, because if you really divide the Torah into three years, which is going to be 150 or so parashot, then you could end, depending where you start, it could be the case that every time, by the way, if you divide the three years, that means any Parsha you read is always going to be the same time of year. Sherwin, what's your bar mitzvah Parsha? Yitro. What Yitro. So, so I know his birthday is in January or February, and I know that is every year Yitro is going to come around his birthday. It's easy. If you have a three and a half, a three-year cycle, will that be the case? Sure, it'll be the case. It'll just happen every three years. And you won't have Yitro, you'll have a Sarata di Broto, you'll have Vaishma Yitro, you'll have part of it, right? 
So it'll still happen the same time of the year. Okay, now, next piece to this puzzle. There is a fascinating work from the ninth century, maybe eighth century of the Gonim, which is called Sefer HaChilukim Bein Bnei Mizrachum Arav. It is a list, just a list of all the customs in which, or practices in which Babylonia and Israel differ. As an ex a fascinating example is in Babylonia, Sefer HaChilukim, in Babylonia, we have two loaves of bread on the table on Shabbat, in Eretz Yisrael, they have one. Right, one example. See what it says. Anshei Mizrach, the east is Bavel. Osin Simchat Torah b'chol shana. They have Simchat Torah every year. Now, Simchat Torah is a Babylonian name. It doesn't exist in Israel. The, the, we borrow it in Israel, but it's, it's a Babylonian name. It's a holiday made up in, in Bavel. Uvnei Eretz Yisrael l'shalosh shanim u'mechza. In Eretz Yisrael, they have Simchat Torah every three and a half years. Right, which is likely more more likely the original custom, which was that in Eretz Israel they finished the Torah every three and a half years, based on the model of finishing it twice in the Hakel cycle, and that Hakel was the model. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, last piece to this puzzle, and then we come back to our original question. <clears throat> At the beginning of Parshat Vatchanan, there is one of the most uh, inspiring speeches that you could imagine, Moshe Rabbeinu at the beginning of his farewell speech describes the experience of Matan Torah. And among it, he says, Be very, very careful. Don't ever forget what you saw. Never leave your heart forever. Tell your kids and your grandchildren. Yom Asher Amarita Lifnei Adonai Lecha B'Chorev, the day that you stood before Hashem at Har Sinai. Right when Hashem told me to gather all the people and I'll tell them my words, they'll learn to fear me all the time that they live here on, on the world. And teach their kids. This is the essential directive that we have of passing on the experience of Maman Har Sinai to our kids. Now. That means that the experience of Mamad Sinai is something that's supposed to be propagated. There's an interesting minhag that is not the common one, but in some communities or some individuals, not only to stand <laughs> up during Kriyat Torah, but to stand up and face the Amud during Kriyat Torah. In other words, they stand or wherever they are, they turn around and face themselves towards the Amud. And it starts here with the in the Mordechai at the end of the 19th parak of Shabbat. He mentions that Rabbeinu Meir, Rabbeinu Meir was the <coughs> biggest rabbi ever in Germany, who was Rabbeinu of Rotenberg. Haya omeid b'sha'at kriyata Torah. He would stand up when the Torah was read. Why? He would also stand up when there was a brit milah. And he quotes the, the uh, pasuk, which is in Nechemiah, v'yamod kol ha'am babrit. Which literally means they all agreed to the Brit. But here it's like they all stood up for the Brit. But what that means is he was explaining and perceiving and, ex and expressing that the public reading of the Torah is a reenactment of the Brit. It's a reenactment of Mamad Ar Sinai. And that is a sentiment that we read also in this passage in the Yerushalmi, which is our last source here. Rabbi Shmuel Barav Yitzchak al Right, Shmuel Rabbi Yitzchak walked in the shul. 
the guy who was doing the Targum was leaning on a pillar. Meaning, they were reading the Torah, and the guy doing the Targum was leaning on a pillar. You're not allowed to do that. Just like when it was originally given, we were trembling, we were in fear, so its reading has to be done that way. Now, what does that mean? It means that he's suggesting, he's directing, that the public reading of the Torah has to be treated with the same awe and reverence as Mamad Ar-Sinai, because it's a reenactment of Mamad Ar-Sinai, hence the pasuk that I just quoted. And we continue, Rabbi Chagai, Amar, Rabbi Shmuel, Rabbi Yitzchak. Again, Rabbi Shmuel, we have a different story of him. He saw that a particular Chuna got up to do the Targum and nobody stood up in his place. Meaning they had the Targum stand up and a guy would stand next to him as part of the pomp and circumstance. And he says, you're not allowed to stand up without somebody next to you because just like the Torah was given through an intermediary, so the teaching should be done through an intermediary. Who's the intermediary? Is Moshe. And so therefore, when you stand up, when you're doing the Targum, you're giving voice to the Torah. Right. And therefore, there should be somebody else next to you as part of the protocol, part of the, part of the, the environment of Matan Torah. al Rabbi Pazi. He quoted the Pasuk that Moshe said, I was the one standing between you, between Hashem and you, when you asked me to give you the words. And that, that was the, the source of there being a sarsur, an intermediary. Just to finish off the piece, he saw that somebody was doing the Targum from the Sefer. And he said, you're not allowed to do that. Divrei Torah Bichtav have to be written for Bichtav. Tvarim Shabalpeh have to be written done Balpeh. The Targum was Balpeh, and that was that. But the point of this passage is that you see, and you see this in numerous passages. I just brought this as an illustration that the experience of Matan Torah has to be felt as if you're reenacting Mamad Har Sinai. However, what we've seen over the course of the last two weeks is a plethora of sources, and we haven't really, really cut in past the tip of the iceberg about what the nature of Kriyat Torah is. But what we have seen and what we've gleaned from this is the following. On the one hand, what developed fairly early in the game, very likely um, already by the time, before the Chorban, before the destruction of the Mikdash, was the idea of having a progressive reading in which the Torah is publicly read and continued and finished at some point and then continues and then goes and then and then we do it again that what the nature of that division was was fairly arbitrary and if Sadia actually says never Sadia, one of the period of the Gonim we also have a, a text that indicates that each community kind of made their own divisions up and they went at whatever pace they went and that seems to be alluded to in the part in the passage in the Gemara that said a person should finish place parachute with the tzibur, meaning whatever the community is doing, that's what we're doing. Over time, as happens with everything, the custom became distilled, the custom then became codified, and then the custom became unified. That's always happens. You have variation of custom, and Haftarot is a great example of this. You have a wide range, then it becomes distilled down to a few variables, 
and then it becomes codified, so it's publicized, and then ultimately one custom seems to carry the day. For instance, there was a custom in the Kilot of Eretz Yisrael to have a three and a half year cycle. The common custom based on Babel was one. The custom of the three and a half year cycle was maintained into the 13th century. We have testimony that in the times of the Rambam, there was a Kilah of Bnei Eretz Yisrael in Kahir, and they continued to read it on the three and a half year cycle. They celebrated Simchat Torah with the community, but they had their own cycle three and a half years. Ultimately, because of the predominance, the powerful dominance of Minhag Bavel, that, that ultimately carried the day. And that's the reason we have the custom that we do. Going back to our original question, and it's time. <clears throat> what is Kriyata Torah? Is it informational or experiential? Is it intended to inspire or to teach? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. And the answer is not just yes, and I'm trying to play a little Zen koan on you. The answer is that the two are inseparable. In other words, there is no inspiration without education, and there is no education without inspiration. If Matan Torah were, okay, let's all quietly read our books, and we'll get up after an hour, and we'll, uh, we'll have read our books, and then we'll go home, that is a dead art that can never be passed on to the next generation because there's nothing living about it. If, on the other hand, it is all kumzits, if, on the other hand, we get up and it's all excitement and pomp and whatever it may be, but there's no actual information there, there's nothing to hold on to, nothing to, in, to, to challenge us, it dies also. So what we saw is that, on the one hand, there was an emphasis on, if you think about it, what progressive reading means is we have to study all this material, and we have to make sure everybody hears this material over the course of X amount of time, a year, three and a half years, whatever it may be. On the other hand, and, and by the way, the fact that we interrupt it in order to read special readings that are pertinent to the time that's coming or the time that we're in means it's informational. You got to hear about Pesach. We're going to read about Pesach today. On the other hand, it's fairly clear that the whole environment of Kriyat Torah, the fact that it was the central event in the Beit Knesset when the earliest Batei Knesset were built, Batei Knesset were not built for prayer. They're built for Kriyat Torah and for public gatherings. That's why they're called Beit Knesset and not Beit Tefillah. And that the idea was really built on the Hakel model, which is Laman Yishmu'u V'yomadu V'yaru at Hashem. Because you cannot come to fear of God without learning. And you cannot have the learning be meaningful without fear of God. And so therefore the experiential uh, prong and the informational prong both operate together. And so the different sources that we've seen seem to speak to that. One source that we saw at the beginning of last week perhaps tips the, the scales a little bit when we had a machloket about whether the readings during the week are progressive. When we saw the opinion of the Tosefta that says, we finish Shabbat Mincha, you pick up there on Monday morning. We finish Monday morning, you pick the Thursday morning. When you finish there, you pick up on Shabbat. That really does perhaps turn it purely informational, whereas the idea that we repeat it maybe gives it more of an experiential piece. It may also be a disagreement about what the about the frequency of people actually being there during the week and to make sure that they hear it. In any case, we've explored a lot of different avenues of Kriyat Torah over the course of the last two weeks. Again, I want to thank Sherwin for a great question that really started some good stuff. And um, and. 
again, this is a tip of the iceberg, but well, maybe a little more than a tip. And we, we have uh, seen a lot of different avenues related to the public reading of the Torah. And hopefully it gives us a better sense of, uh, of what it is that we're experiencing when we, are, when we are reading. Rabbi, do you have time for a quick question? I do. <laughs> 